I mean, I get some of the stuff he says. I don't, I don't know where the gallbladders come from. And I said, buddy, those are gutters. And he laughed. He's laughing. It was so funny. He said, the udders, the udders. <laughs> we got to start from the beginning. He's got to spend, he's got to spend some time with youth there. And you tell him what this is, what this is what a house is, this is how it's built, these is what these things are. The gallbladders. And so I had to clean out, I had to clean out the gallbladders in the middle of all that. Um, I didn't want to. I didn't want to do that, but sometimes you got to do it. And, and sometimes it's not so much you get what you want, sometimes you do get what you need, right? Isn't that what Mick Jagger says? You don't always get what you want, sometimes you get what you need. And I need to go out there and fix the gallbladders, and so they're, they're working fine today. Same thing with Christmas morning, you know. Uh, Sam and Ashley went to mom and dad to celebrate Christmas. I stayed home because we lost power. Of course, you know, I mean, there's only 364 other days that could have happened, but on Christmas, we lose power, and I got to figure that out and get the, get the DPNL out there and all kinds of things. It was from the street, and that was a big mess. But we got power. Sometimes you don't get what you want, but you get what you need. I don't know about you, but this past year, in, in, in many ways, was not what I wanted. And I'm sure, as I'm looking out at you, and you're thinking about your life, and your family, and your home, and your job, or, or this church, there was just a whole lot of stuff you didn't want. Fortunately, though, I think even in the face of getting a whole lot of stuff we don't want, there's a lot of stuff we can learn. In fact, I would take it even a, a further step and say that there's a lot of stuff we need that we can gain through adversity, difficulty, sometimes even tragedy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Father, that we continue to worship, that we continue to experience who you are, what you are, your goodness, Father. We thank you that we get to meet like this. That This meeting, Father, is just a tremendous gift that you've given to us. We thank you that we can learn from your word, that we can, we can not only learn lessons, but take hope and guidance from your word, Father. And so we ask that you open our eyes today, that you calm our hearts today as we look at these incredible truths that you give us throughout history. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and we're just going to start there. We're actually going to be jumping around to a lot of different verses today, and they're going to be on your screen. But but James chapter 1 really is, is where we're launching from. And James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, these, this is the couple of verses in Scripture that many people like to quote so long as they're not actually going through hardship. So long as they're not actually going through difficulty, it's easy to quote something like this. And James says, Consider it pure joy. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. 
we are going to, next week, um, I, I encourage you to be here and, and, and bring people here that are, are, are excited about the coming year because we are going to look at where we're going, where we're going this year. We're going to look at how our sermon series fit together throughout 2021. We're going to look at some of the things we're doing with discipleship and, and, and our goals. Our goals have changed a little bit uh, due to this past year and all the uh, uncertainty. And so I encourage you to be here next week. But this week, I want to look back. I want to look back and see some of the things that we have learned. And by we, I mean I. And I assume that many of you have learned the same lessons, or I hope that you have. Consider it pure joy. Now, I don't know if I've learned that lesson yet. I don't know if I look at hardship, and I don't know if I look at struggle, and I don't know if I look at difficulty and and get excited about it. But I do know that after just 39 years, I can look back upon struggle and hardship difficulty and think that and know that I have learned and grown from it and become stronger. So some of the things that we can grow from, some of the things that we can learn to become stronger. The first one is this, the building that we're in. This is a gift. This is a gift. This isn't, this isn't owed to any one of us. And not only is this a gift, this is a gift from God through you, through you, the, the facilities that we have, the people, the deacons, and, 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 and all of these, these folks that help maintain this thing. But not only that, for years people have worked in this building and in this facility, called this facility home. The community around Russellvania, around Logan County, has used this facility for various things. People gave, people sacrificed, continue to give, continue to sacrifice for this facility, for this building, these four walls. It's an incredible gift. And I'll tell you something, it shouldn't be shrugged off. It should be seen as an incredible gift. It should be treated with appreciation. It should be felt. This appreciation should be felt from from folks who, who gave and aren't even here anymore. Some have passed away. Some have gone on to other churches and other parts of the body. Some have moved away. And they continued throughout their time and throughout their ministry, not only to give treasure, but to give time and to give help for this building. But what have we learned? A truth that I think you already know. Number one is this. The church is not these four walls. The church is not these four walls. You know, in Scripture, if you've ever thought about it, throughout the entire New Testament, never once, never once is the church referred to as a building in any way. Now, the temple is. The temple's referred to a building, the temple in Jerusalem, but never the church. It's always addressed to a group of people, never a specific place. You've heard this many times, and if this hasn't been driven home throughout 2020, I don't know anything that's going to do it, and that is you don't just go to church or go to the church. You are the church wherever you go. I happen to think it's a beautiful picture of the triune God. Each person 
of the Godhead, being fully and completely the church, each, or fully and completely God, each church member, no matter where they go, even if they're separated from other people, they are still fully and completely the church. The church is not these four walls. We had a time of meeting online rather than in person. And uh, by the way, I, I, I was just fascinated by that whole thing. It went on for about seven weeks. A couple things I realized in those seven weeks. Number one, the first time I preached to a camera without people here, it was kind of fun because it was new and it was different. Pretty much the second time, I didn't like it anymore. I, it, 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 it's, it just doesn't compare to have people here, be able to talk, be able to see, to be able to, to feed off of one another. This is just so much more fun. And we still had to go through a lot of the regular stuff throughout the week. The thing I hated was then on Sunday, the payoff wasn't there. I love preaching. I was, that's why I muddle through the rest of six days, just so I can get to this day right here and preach. It's fun. And of course, we couldn't do that for about seven weeks or eight weeks. By the way, um, Nate Dubois and Cody and Wes, just so you guys know, we've said this before. During those seven or eight weeks, they put the church on top of their back and they carried this church, okay? You need to know that, and others, and others. Uh, but those three guys in particular made it so that we continued to fellowship and meet and, and do so many of the other things. I didn't particularly like preaching that way, but it was a necessity. I think it was a smart one. Churches all over the world did this. Some are still doing this, depending on where they are. And yet, even with us not meeting together like this, the church is still here. The body of Christ is still here, and body parts of Christ are still here all around the world. There is nothing, church, listen closely, there is nothing, there is nothing the world can throw at the church to destroy it. Nothing. That is an absolute promise of God. Now, sometimes we think that the things we love are getting destroyed. I'm reminded of so many of the prophets throughout Scripture and how they think the world's just coming down on them and it just, it, it just life is hard and this is the end and this is the bad as it gets. And, and you know, all of these prophets, Elijah, I'm the last one left. And God says, no, no, there's more. There's more. There's always more. There's nothing that the world can do to destroy the church if it does not destroy you, if the church remains faithful to Jesus Christ. So what if it's location? I don't care about that. That's not theology. It's not ecclesiology. It's not eschatology. That's just geography, right? We have the church wherever we want. You can have the church around your table. Many people did. Now, God wrote to churches in specific cities in areas throughout, uh, throughout the, the Mediterranean. He did this through his servant Paul. But bear in mind, he was never once writing to a specific, uh, a specific building in those areas. It was most likely writing to a home. In fact, more specific, it was really most likely writing to many homes throughout that city or many homes throughout that area as he writes to the church in Galatia. As he writes to the church in Rome, he didn't even know the church in Rome. But God writes through Paul, Romans 16, greet Priscilla and Aquila, 
my co-workers in Christ Jesus, they risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. And I like this, verse 5, greet also the church that meets in their house. Church that meets in their house. And the church that meets in other houses in Rome. And the church that meets outside the city gates. And the church that meets as they're walking along the road. Perhaps the most obvious example that the church is not a specific building is just one verse back. You're in James 1 already. Go one verse back to his address. I love this. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Scattered among the nations. He's writing to the church. He doesn't even know where they are. He knows they're there. They're scattered amongst the nations. Now, don't think for a second that because we address this reality, that this is an excuse to discontinue fellowship. That's not healthy for anybody. Not healthy for me. It's not healthy for you. Makes preaching a lot less fun. So be here. Continue to meet. This is a command in Scripture. It's a command in Scripture because it is good for you, and it's good for those around you. It's good for your children. It's good for your grandchildren. Hebrews 10, 24, 25 And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as so many are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. But how we do it, how we meet together, is never guaranteed. Just know that. Never guaranteed. The church is guaranteed. How we carry that out, is never guaranteed. The way we do it is a gift, particularly in Western culture. We see examples in Acts chapter 2 of people meeting in their homes. We see examples in Acts chapter 2 of people meeting in the temple. The temple was the essentially the Jewish church. And those who were Christians, those who accepted Christ, they really didn't have any other place to meet. So they said, hey, let's just go to the temple. Let's hang out there. We'll just, we'll just spend some time there. That wasn't their church building. That's where they were meeting. And then they met in homes. There's churches today that actually refuse to have a specific place and building where they meet. I know of one in Indiana. I know of three in Texas. And they're continuing to grow and flourish and spread all over the city because they want to drive home this point that the church is not a single place. It is you. It is you wherever you go. The church cannot die. The church cannot die. Church. In fact, you ought to one of these days either write or call one of our own missionaries, Glenn Shady, France. He'll tell you. He'll tell you, trust me, the church isn't one single building. He's the boots on the ground. He's meeting in homes here, and he's meeting in a rented building or space over there, and he's meeting out in a park over here, realizing that the church can grow no matter what is provided to it. The church is not these four walls. That's the first thing we've learned. And I think that's more of a reminder than learning something new. Second thing we've learned over this past year, and again, many of these, I hope they are, are simply reminders to you. There are some things you cannot control, but you can control your reaction to them. 
There are some things you cannot control. That's life. But you can control how you act or how you react. One of the fruits of the Spirit, church, is the ability and the conviction to self-control. Self-control. And it's very, very important we put that self on there. Self-control. You see, sometimes we think we are given the ability or even the responsibility of all control or everything control or others control. There's no such promise in Scripture. There is a promise of self-control. Now, I don't know if I would call this in the negative, thinking of it in the negative. It's not, but sometimes we think of self-control as not doing something, right? Controlling our tempers, or maybe controlling our desires of the flesh. And these are good things, and this is where self-control comes into play. But this is also in action, self-control in action, forward movement. We can control our minds. We can control our hearts. Church, self-control means you can control your fears. That's what self-control means. Self-control means that we can control our obedience, our love, these action, these, these living out love, and we can control the faith that we show. There is power, and here's my point, there is power written specifically in the Word of God, given specifically by God. There is power given to the Christian through the Spirit to not lose our heads in the face of trial. Unless we ignore it. Unless we reject it. Unless we fill, instead of using the spirit of peace that we have, we use fear, we use pride, we use many other things. 2 Timothy 1, 7, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power. Love and this self-discipline. You see, that's the gift that we have. That's, this, that's this, this perspective that we have of life through God Himself. It is the Spirit that says, look, you're not going to lose your head. Everybody else may be losing their head, but not you. If we listen, if we submit, if we obey. We have the ability to control our actions We have the ability to control our actions towards others. We have the ability to control our reactions because of something hard or out of the ordinary. And by the way, since we are given a spirit of self-discipline, since we are given a spirit of self-control, there is no one to place blame on other than yourself if you lose control. Lose control in anger. Lose control in hopelessness, lose control in sadness and in fear. That's why it's called self-control. One of the best examples of this, and, and, and this, this story has been preached a lot, I think, throughout the past year, and that is the story of Job, right? And, and we haven't talked a whole lot about Job. I, I've purposely kind of been avoiding that, frankly, because everybody was talking about Job. But I think it's very interesting to see the control that Job has over his life. Now, most of you know the story. 
Satan presents himself. We get to see the backstory. We get to see behind the scenes. Satan presents himself to God. God says, hey, what have you been doing? Satan says, I've been going here and there throughout the world, trying to find somebody to tempt, somebody to destroy. And God says, hey, I got somebody for you. I'm going to put my, I'm going to put my champion up against you. He says, if you considered my servant Job. And he says, I'll tell you what. He says, why don't you put yourself up against my champion, but you can't hurt him. You can't physically hurt him. You can't physically hurt him, you can't kill him. But anything else is up to you. I guarantee you, he's going to beat you. So Satan takes that deal. He takes that bet. And Job loses everything. He loses his crops. He loses his livestock. It gets even worse than that. He loses his kids. And we find Job's reaction in Job chapter 1, 20 through 22. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Verse 22, in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. What an incredible control he has over his mind. Control he has over his heart, over even his expressions of agony. This is God's champion up against Satan himself. Once again, Satan comes back. And God even tells him, he says, look, you've challenged Job, you've challenged my champion, and yet, even God says, he maintains his integrity. Satan says, well, of course. You didn't let me hurt him physically. Now he's changing the rules. You didn't let me hurt him physically. Let Let me hurt him physically, and I guarantee you he will curse you to your face. Once again, we see Satan torment Job, he's covered in sores from head to toe. And we see Job's response in Job chapter 2, 9 through 10. First of all, we see the response of his wife. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? I'm sure that was a happy union. I'll bet they got along just wonderfully. Why don't you just curse God and die? It's like worst thing you could say to like anybody that's his wife i wonder what his enemies are saying to him but he replied in verse 10 you're talking like a foolish woman shall we accept good from god and not trouble and all of this job did not sin in what he said such an incredible control an incredible perspective of job This amazing way in which he can understand that God is God and it's not Job. And Job's going to accept the good and he's going to accept the bad and he's going to do his very best throughout. We find ultimately that Satan loses the challenge. Job gets yelled at by God, but Satan loses the challenge. I'm reminded of there's a story in John chapter 9, and this isn't going to be on your screen, but when I was reading through this, I was reminded of Jesus walking along and seeing a blind man, blind from birth. And his disciples ask him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, who had control over this, right? Jesus comes back and says, nobody sinned. Nobody had control over this. It happened to this man. But why did it happen, Jesus says, 
It was done so that the power of God might be displayed in his life. He had no control over it. And yet he calls out to Jesus. And Jesus asks him what he wants. He says, I want to see. Jesus tells him to do some things. He obeys and he sees. We cannot control everything that happens to us. But we can control our reaction. You can control that. It's hard. Look, I'm not saying it's easy, all right? Very difficult to do those things. But the other option is destruction. The other option is being with the masses losing their heads. And we should learn that. Third thing we've learned over the past year, there's been a lot of storms, right? A lot of hurricanes down south. Lynn and Julie got got mixed up in some of those, and fortunately, nothing major happened. But there was a ton of them that blew through. Here's the thing. Next year, there's going to be more. There's going to be more hurricanes. I'm just, I'm always struck by the guy, you know, that's got on the tank top and and the jean shorts standing out by the shore going, I couldn't believe we got hit by this hurricane. You've been living there for 40 years, man. There's going to be another one next year, brother. I couldn't believe it. It just caught us by surprise. Storms come and storms go, and they will all of our lives. And they're going to range in intensity, church. In fact, you might be going through a really bad storm right now. But that storm doesn't last forever. What we do in the middle of the storm defines who we are. It defines our faith. We're not defined, our faith is not defined at the beginning of the storm when everything's beautiful and the sky is blue. Our faith is not defined at the end of the storm when we come through it going, all right, I made it, my house is still there, we're good. No, our faith is defined in the middle of the storm. Are we going to just lay down? Are we going to stop? Are we going to quit? Are we going to be consumed by dread? You see, I think too often, too often, we as, we as the church, we as people, we prove Satan right. Too often we prove Satan right. You see, when, when, when God told Satan, he said, why don't you go up against Job? Why don't you go up against my champion? He honors me. He has, he's a man of integrity. He's, he's an upright and righteous man. You know what Satan says? Satan says this in Job 1, 9 through 11. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Too often we prove Satan right. I love Jesus. I'm going to sing praises to Jesus until we're right in the middle of the eye of the storm. That's That's what cultures and people around you, you saw it. Just give up. I'm done, I'm out, this is too much. And Satan just kicks his feet up and laughs. Not Job. Job says, I'm going to worship God in the middle of this storm. As storms come and storms go, they will your whole life. And while a deliberate cursing of God is probably not real common in our culture, we have lack of faith. We have giving up on His Word. 
We have giving up on His presence, and all these things are just as bad. Jesus calmed the storms with His disciples. His disciples were in the boat, scared to death. Jesus was asleep. They woke Him up. They said, Jesus, there's a storm. What are you going to do? Jesus speaks to the storm and calms the storm. But what does He ask them when He turns around? Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Storms come and storms go. I like the story of the 12 spies that were sent into Canaan. We find this in the Old Testament, in this record of the Israelite people, particularly though in Numbers 13 and 14. Moses sends 12 spies into Canaan to see the promised land. There it is, yours for the taking, they say. But they know in order to go through that, in order to get to that, they're going to have to go through some storms. And these storms come in the form of confrontation with these people that are living there. The kingdom of God, of joy, of peace, the direction of God, the testimony about God is right there for the taking. But when faced with the enemy, when faced with the storms, 10 out of the 12 spies say, we're out. We're out. I'm gone. It's too much. From who? From supposed men who are strong and mature and keep their word. Now we're out. It's too hard. In fact, the two that said they could do it, Joshua and Caleb, the people wanted to stone them. They wanted to kill them. The insanity of people. And why did they want to kill them? Because of the others that lost their nerve. Numbers 13, 31-32 says this, but the men who had gone up with them said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. And all the people we saw there of great size. That's why you go through the storm and you see the person who's not going to be defied by the storm. You go through the storm, you see the person who's going to continue to have their faith, going to continue to praise God, going to continue to worship, going to continue to be this promise that they've been given and others look at them like they're crazy. Because the other ten spies, that's, they spread the word. This is bad, that guy's crazy. Because those who would give up, Ultimately, the people couldn't go in. At least that generation couldn't go in. Only Joshua and Caleb were the ones who made it to the promised land. The major difference between victory and failure, church, I think we see in James is perseverance. That's what Jesus says in John 16. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It's the fourth thing we've learned. In light of all of these things that we've, we've gone over, we have got to be patient with each other. We have got to work with each other. And we have got to be strong for each other. We've got to be strong for each other. We have got to carry those around us. Church, we've got to keep our word. We've got to keep our doggone word. It's one of the biggest issues, one of the biggest problems we have in society today, culture today, the church today. Families today, marriages today, people don't keep their word. We got to keep our word. What is losing your word? What is not being strong for one another? What is not being patient with each other? That's lack of faith. That's all it is. We profess our faith, we profess our trust in Jesus as Lord, and then we flee. If not physically, spiritually, mentally, even emotionally. I'm reminded, I talked about this in our elders' meeting. And I've told this story before. I like it. Um, it's, uh, 
not one of my favorites, but uh, I do like it. Got to be careful, I can't use that term when Theron's around. Um, Samuel 14, we find Jonathan going to attack Philistines by himself, right? Nobody's there, nobody's around, the army's not around, nobody even has weapons. You know, the, 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 the prince, as it were, he's the son of Saul, he's going to go take care of these Philistines because life was bad, they were trapped, the whole Israelite army was trapped, they had nothing. Jonathan said, I'm going to go take care of them. I'm going to go take them all myself. But he didn't go alone. There was one other person that went with him, and nobody knows his name. It was Jonathan's armor bearer. And Jonathan's armor bearer tells his prince, he tells his Lord, I'm going to go with you wherever you go. I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. We're going to go into battle together. And I'm going to support you. I'm going to take this on myself. Verse 7, Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 14, starting in verse 7. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you heart and soul. See, we've got to be the armor bearer for one another. When things get tough, when things get hard, when things get uncertain, we have to be the armor bearer. Hey, I'm going with you. I can't take all your problems. I can't carry all your problems. But I can help carry you. That's what the armor bearer says. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. They go into battle, one royalty and the other servant. The servant follows, come what may. He is dedicated to the task. He's dedicated to his word. He is dedicated to his Lord. That same dedication to our Lord is shown, perhaps not wielding a sword, but caring about those around you. We have got, it's just got to be in our minds. That if you're going to be a part of this family, you're going to love one another, you're going to be patient with one another, you're going to be strong for each other, and we're going to keep our word. And finally this, we'll close with this one. We've got to keep moving. That's the fifth thing we've learned over this past year. You've got to keep moving. We have to be going somewhere. We have to be growing somewhere. Church, we have, and you know this, we have goals in this church. But sometimes, just like in your own life, sometimes those goals need to change, they need to adapt, but that doesn't mean you stop, that doesn't mean you give up. It also doesn't mean you're back to square one. The goal of our life is not to accept Jesus and then wait to die, okay? That shouldn't be the goal of your life, shouldn't be the goal of mine. It is to live and work and operate and grow and build the kingdom of God. It is here. It is now. Our job, our goal is to respond to Christ, to be useful to the building of the kingdom of service. This means that each of us have to be going somewhere, not just existing. We go from acceptance to discipleship. And wonderful things happen when you change your goals. Wonderful things happen when you have to change direction. You know, there's a letter to the Galatians. In Scripture, we're going to go through this this year, this year, all right, 2020, we're going to go through this, 2021, the letter to the Galatians. You know, Paul wrote that letter because he had to change his plans. The Galatians heard the gospel of Christ because Paul, ironically, got sick. And so he went there and told them about Jesus. And he gives this wonderful picture of the gospel message what you might call basic Bible doctrine. He wanted to preach other places. But his goals changed, 
and he changed direction. He didn't stop. He changed direction. This week, we have seen some of the lessons we have learned. Next week, we look at where we're going to go this year. And church, it is my sincere hope that over this past year, you've realized that you need to keep moving from where you are to where you're supposed to be, what you were created to be, learning these lessons along the way, growing, as I hope I have grown, becoming stronger, becoming more faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can learn. We thank you that even the hard stuff is so incredibly valuable, as your servant James writes, that we can learn perseverance, that our character can be built and strengthened, that we can come off of something difficult and be even better, be even stronger than we were before. Father, we know that none of that matters if we don't keep our eyes upon Jesus. If we don't realize the truth that we are created in this time and in this place for a very special purpose. Help us, Father, to live that out, to realize this, to show that we can be champions against Satan just as Job is throughout this coming year. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and sing. song we could ever sing worthy of all the praise we could ever bring worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you Jesus the name above every other name Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Oh, we live for you. And holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes and wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. Oh
Love to those around. 